Today we're wrapping up our series, Digital Babylon, Faith for Exiles. I hope that over the course of these past six weeks, God has poked on some of the areas of your heart and life and has invited you into a more deeply uh, transformational relationship with himself. We're confronted each day with the choice of whether or not we are going to recognize the influence of the kingdom we're living in, whether or not we're going to uh, remember our identities as citizens of another kingdom, and whether or not we're going to resolve in our hearts to stand firm in the face of cultural coercion. The research we've been looking at in this series, which comes to us from the Barna Group by way of the book Faith for Exiles by David Kinneman and Mark Matlock, it tells us that resilient disciples are the 10% of those raised in the church who are still engaged in the local church, who trust in the Bible, who are personally committed to Jesus, and who express a desire to see the world transformed through their faith. These resilient disciples exhibit five practices that have been the focus of our sermon series. We've looked at meaningful intergenerational relationships, experiencing intimacy with Jesus, developing cultural discernment, and clarifying vocational discipleship. Today, we're going to look at the fifth, and final practice of our series, countercultural mission. In a culture like Digital Babylon, where entitlement and self-centeredness are rampant, we need to get our eyes outside of ourselves. And countercultural mission is how we do that. When a lot of people think about the younger generations, whether that's millennials like me or Gen Z, that's coming after me, uh, they tend to think about them, about us, in some pretty negative stereotypes. I think this tends to have more to do with the generation gap than it does with any specific generation. The trends that we see within the younger generations aren't absent from the older generations. They've just been cultivated to a different extent in the generations that have come of age in the last couple of decades. It was, after all, the Boomers and the Gen Xers who raised the Millennials and the Zoomers. A generation is always a reaction against and an extension of their parents' generation. Entitlement is one of those words that many people throw around when they're speaking about the Millennial generation. We can see that in the reality that most 20-somethings today expect to have attained their dream job within five years. At first, that sounds like a pretty startling claim, but when you start to think about all the participation trophies those 20-somethings received during their childhood, or about the many times that they were told that you can be anything you want to be, or you can achieve your dreams, or the countless practices and performances they were carted around to, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see the connection. When we've made idols out of our children, or tried to fulfill our unrealized childhood goals through them, it's no wonder they grow up thinking the world is centered on them. The hard part is, though, this kind of self-centeredness 
is often hidden in the language of pursuing happiness. In fact, 51% of teenagers say that their top goal for life is happiness. But happiness in Digital Babylon is, is almost always focused on a feeling that I experience individually. And we find that definition of happiness only by looking inside ourselves. However, that great German reformer, Martin Luther, defined sin as the heart turned in on itself. Literally, self-centeredness. The natural consequence of a generation or an individual raised to embrace uh, a me-first, self-indulgent, self-centered way of life is going to be an expression of entitlement. When your whole life has been about making you happy, and you being happy has been the highest good, then you begin to expect certain things in life to go your way. You believe you deserve something, even if you haven't done the work to deserve it. I don't think anyone is surprised to hear that self-centeredness and entitlement are so prevalent in digital Babylon. However, that doesn't change the fact that one of the questions that people are asking is, can I make a difference? We want to know not just, why am I here, like we talked about last week, but also, can I make a difference? Am I able to change things? Am I leaving behind a legacy? Now, sometimes our motivations for making a difference can actually feed our self-centeredness. We seek to make a difference in order to make a name for ourselves or to salve a, a guilty conscience or as a reaction against something we're unwilling to take time to understand. Other times our motivations are more altruistic. We want to uh, improve someone's life or we have a desire to solve a problem. But the biggest difference we can make comes when we lay aside our own motivations, no matter how good they are, and we hitch our desire to make a difference to the mission of the cause of Christ in the world. We may not be the Blues Brothers, but we're called to be on a mission from God. When we engage in God's countercultural mission, we're declaring two things with our lives. First, we're declaring that we believe God is powerful and active and intentional in the world. We're trusting that God is doing something in the world, not just a long time ago, but today, right now, in this moment. The second thing we're declaring is that we believe God wants his people, his followers, to play a role in redeeming people and restoring the world to himself. God has shared his grand mission with us. He wants to love people, not just through us. God wants to love people with us. This idea of countercultural mission that came up in the research is kind of where the rubber hits the road, though. You may have been okay talking about intimacy with Jesus or meaningful relationships, cultural discernment, even vocational discipleship, although... That one started to get into our day-to-day -day life that people actually see. But countercultural mission takes those four practices that are fairly inward, and it directs them outward for everyone to see. 
maybe we could best describe it as a sense of mission for the cause of Christ in the world and a resolute orientation toward walking against the grain of culture. It's about what we do together as the body of Christ to be on mission to influence the world towards God's redemptive purposes. I want to take a few minutes today to look at the story that Kim read for us from the life of the prophet Elijah. Elijah is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. By way of background to this story, you need to know that during Elijah's ministry, the king of Israel was a guy named Ahab. Now, Ahab was what the Bible considers a bad king. Listen to how Ahab's described a couple of chapters earlier. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He did not consider it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Ahab was a bad dude. Now, Elijah was still living in the land of Israel, the promised land, but the culture around him had changed. The people of Israel had turned their backs on God. So God sent Elijah to tell Ahab that as a result of Ahab's leading the people into idolatry, there wasn't going to be any rain. None. Three drought-filled years later, God tells Elijah to go show himself to Ahab again. There are some great stories in there, but this is where we're going to pick up for today. Elijah calls for a showdown between himself and the prophets of Baal, between his God and their God. Whichever God answered by fire would be shown to be the true God. Now you want to talk about a countercultural mission? Elijah is going up against 450 prophets of Baal, King Ahab, and all the people who followed the king. That's pretty tough. Now, Elijah's such a nice guy, he lets the prophets of Baal go first. They dance and jump and cut themselves and yell. Then Elijah mocks them for a while, but they go right on trying to get Baal's attention. And then, I love how the Bible puts it, but there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Nothing. So Elijah calls the crowd over to himself, and he rebuilds the altar of the Lord, and he prepares the sacrifice. But he doesn't stop there. He has the people douse the whole thing with water. Not once. Not twice but three times. Have you ever tried to start a fire with wet wood? It's not fun or easy. When everything is ready, Elijah doesn't start jumping around. He doesn't yell or make a scene. 
he just steps forward and he prays three simple things. He prays, show yourself to be God. Show that I'm obeying what you told me. And show that you are the one turning the hearts of the people back to you. No big show, no grandiose words, just trust and obedience. And God answered with fire. Now that is resilient faith that stands firm in the face of cultural coercion and lives vibrantly in the spirit. I'm pretty sure that Elijah was convinced that Ahab was going to kill him the first time he saw the prophet. But Elijah went anyway. Why? Elijah had an intimacy with God. He saw the lie in the culture around him. And he had a unique vocational calling. All this came together and Elijah responded to God's invitation to join him in mission. And God showed himself true to the people of Israel through the faithfulness of Elijah. So what does it look like for us to live as resilient disciples on countercultural mission in the midst of our exile in digital Babylon? There are things God wants us to do in the context of the culture we live in. And as we wrap up this message and the series, I want to look at three of those things, three categories for us to consider as we seek to live faithful lives and prepare disciples for the world that exists rather than the world we wish existed. Number one, if we're going to stand firm against cultural coercion, we've got to choose courage over safety. Going against the grain, standing when everyone else is bowing, is scary. We need to acknowledge that fear and choose to trust God in spite of it. Millennials who dropped out of church reported that among their chief reasons for doing so was a feeling that their church was overprotective. Remember, our purpose is not to protect our children or our disciples from the world around them, but to prepare them for it. We don't do our young disciples any favors by by teaching them to put safety first. Life isn't going to be safe. And we must choose to put mission first. Courage doesn't generally just happen. It has to be taught and reinforced. And resilient disciples are willing to take epic risks to say and do what is right. But they need to be trained to do it. Which leads us to number two. If we're going to remain resiliently faithful, we've got to prepare for difficult conversations. The ability to engage in difficult conversations is one of the most critical practical skills needed for life in digital Babylon. Even among the resilient disciples, they often have more confidence in what they believe than they do clarity about how to express those convictions. And let's be honest, there are a lot of difficult conversations that are either happening today or need to happen. 
Here are just a few to get your mind going. I spoke earlier in the service about racism. There's a lot of conversation that needs to take place around that topic. I'm only beginning to scratch the surface and it's clear to me this is a very complex conversation. So how are we preparing ourselves as followers of Jesus and our young people to enter into those conversations with grace? Another area of conversation is the relationship between science and faith. Many feel they can either accept the science of today or accept the Bible as true. There's not a lot of middle ground. But what if we learn to see scripture and nature as complementary revelations of God rather than competing ideologies? A third uh, area, without getting into a lot of details, is sexuality. 81% of resilient disciples believe God designed sex to be between one man and one woman in marriage. However, only half of them say their churches help them live wisely when it comes to sexuality. Why aren't we having this conversation, church? The world certainly isn't shying away from it. There are hard conversations taking place that we need to be prepared to participate in as followers of Jesus. If we're ever going to gain the right to have those conversations with people, we've got to lead with love. People have to know that you care about them as, as a person, probably over a period of time, before they're going to be willing to listen to you and your ideas. We've got to learn to listen to understand before we try to be understood. Finally, number three, if we're going to live faithful lives in digital Babylon, we need to work together for the sake of others. We're called as the people of God to form a generative community that blesses others. That's part of being made in the image of a creating God like we spoke about last week. Just as God told Abram, before he became Abraham, when he called Abram into a covenant relationship, I will bless you to be a blessing. That's true for us as well, both locally and globally. Resilient disciples have often been given real opportunities to make a difference in people's lives through experiences with their church. This isn't just letting people tag along while we do the ministry. It's about inviting them to be full participants in what God is doing and what God wants to do through them. I don't think the culture we've been calling Digital Babylon is going to disappear overnight. And even if it did, who knows what would replace it. We've got to learn to be and form resilient disciples in the midst of it. When we prepare our young people, our kids, our disciples for a world that doesn't exist, we're undercutting our witness and passing on a flimsy faith that won't last. We're setting them up to fail. If we're going to be and form followers of Jesus who are resiliently faithful in the face of cultural coercion, and who live vibrant lives in the Spirit, we must show them how to engage in countercultural mission, 
trusting God's power at work in the world, and living differently than the cultural norms. Would you pray with me? God, we need your wisdom, and we need your help, because the world around us doesn't look like we wish it would. And so we ask that you would you'd help us in these days as we seek to be and form resilient disciples. Help us to know where you're leading us, where you're guiding us, what you're calling us to be a part of in the world. God, that you would show us how you want to use us as individuals, as a church, to make a difference in the world around us. You've called us to make a difference, and you've equipped us to make a difference. And so, God, we want to come right alongside wherever you're working to join you in your countercultural mission. God, help us to be wise in the midst of, of digital Babylon so we can understand uh, what things we need to challenge, what things we need to push against, and what things we can just let go. God, we ask that you help us to prepare to have the hard conversations. That you would help us as we seek to be a blessing to others, as we work for others' good. God, be with us and, and equip us, challenge us, shape us, so that we can be the people of God you've called us to be in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.